calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit slash nocturnal. Chapter 54. A Picture is Worth a Thousand Words Rex Deprovdichuk sat in his living room. The TV played an infomercial, something about speed reading. Roberta wasn't moving. She was never going to move again. Rex didn't have to worry about her anymore. Or Oscar Woody. Or Jay Pilar. Rex drew. He drew Alex Panos. He drew Isaac Moses. Rex didn't know how it worked, but he didn't have to. Oscar and Jay were dead. Isaac and Alex would be next. He'd skipped school again. He wasn't ever going back. Rex drew. Chapter 55 An Offer Aggie Can't Refuse Hands shook Aggie James awake. He was old, recovering from addiction, hadn't slept worth a crap in days. But there was no grogginess, no confusion. He knew exactly where he was. He knew what the hands meant. The masked men had come for him. Aggie jerked upright, his threadbare blanket flying away, his hands waving about in total panic without direction or purpose. He started to scream, but only managed to take in a big breath before a hand smacked him in the face. Smacked him hard, snapping his head back as he fell to his ass. The room spun. His face stung like someone had pressed a hot iron against it. He blinked a few times, feet automatically pushing him away, sliding his butt across the floor until his back hit the white wall. A flash of pink fabric with white spots, a hand clamping on the back of his head, another across his mouth. He smelled household cleaners and faded smoke. In an instant, he registered her raw power. Her hands were steel skeletons covered with warm flesh, hands that could snap his neck with no effort at all. Aggie stopped struggling. He stared at the old woman who held his head tight. You be quiet, Hillary whispered. A pink scarf with white polka dots covered her thin gray hair. The scarf's tied ends dangled below her chin. So many wrinkles on that face. Aggie thought about striking out, 
but she held him so hard he couldn't move his head, couldn't even open his mouth. You be quiet. I can kill you easy peasy, you understand? Mm-hmm, Aggie said. Good, she said. Tomorrow night we come for the Chinaman. She turned his head so he could see the Chinaman, who was sound asleep. I let you go now, she said. You make any trouble for me, they will take you instead. Understand? Mm-hmm, Aggie said. She let go of his head, but her face stayed close to his. After the Ouviers come for the Chinaman, I will come for you. I will show you what happens if you do not do what I ask. Aggie shivered, both in fear and in hope. You mean, you mean maybe I don't die? Hillary nodded. Maybe, if you do what I say. Aggie nodded violently. Anything, he whispered. Anything you want. What do I gotta do? She stood and stared down at him. You help save the life of a king, she said. You do this, maybe you live. She walked away. Aggie couldn't stop shivering. He'd resigned himself to a brutal end where those freakish masked men dragged him out of the cell. But now, her words allowed a sliver of hope to pierce his soul. He gently fingered his jaw. It was already swelling. Maybe he could get out of this insane dungeon. Maybe. Maybe he could live. All he had to do was help save a king. Chapter 56 BMB BNP Trade Notes Pookie watched Brian shovel a forkful of chocolate chip pancakes into his mouth. Before even chewing, syrup still dripping from his beard, Brian also crammed in two full strips of bacon. Yeah, Brian, Pookie said. Now I see why a hot piece of ass like Robin Hudson can't stay away from you. It's the charm. For you, Brian said, chewing with his mouth open. And dirty talk, too. You're the total package, Klauser. Brian grabbed a piece of toast with his right hand, smashed it into a ball, and shoved the whole thing into his mouth. So sexy. Pookie said. Are you still sick? Brian nodded, then shook his head. He took a big sip of coffee to wash down the obscenely huge mouthful of food. I still hurt all over, but not as bad, he said after a big swallow. I'm not feverish anymore. I think I'm over it, whatever it is. Man, I'm so hungry. Eat all you want, little fella, as long as you don't hurl on me. Brian answered by shoveling in more pancakes, more bacon, and another balled-up piece of toast. Pookie felt a sense of relief. Brian was clearly feeling better. He still looked tired and pale, but the spark had returned to his eyes. He really had to trim that beard, though. Despite the improvement, Brian still wasn't back to normal. Pookie wondered if normal was something Brian could ever be again. Hell, had he ever been normal? Still, an alert Brian was the Brian that Pookie needed. The case wasn't going to solve itself. Pookie heard the roar of a motorcycle engine approaching. The sound lowered to a gurgle as a purple Harley pulled up outside. The driver backed it into a parking space, 
then took off a dark purple helmet to reveal the bony face and mottled bald head of one black Mr. Burns. That bike looks awesome, Brian said. He did that work himself? I think so, yeah, Pookie said. The guy's great with mechanical stuff. At least he's awesome with something. What's that supposed to mean? Brian slathered red jelly on a piece of toast and shrugged. You and he went through the same shit. I don't see you driving a desk. The comment pissed Pookie off and also stirred up his guilty feelings. Brian was being dismissive of a friend and former partner. That made Brian a dick. Pookie was probably an even bigger dick because as much as he hated to admit it, sometimes he felt the same way about John. The guy got shot, Pookie said. So did you, Brian said. You're out there every day walking the line. Pookie didn't really have an answer for that. What the fuck do you want the man to do, Brian? If he could be out there, he'd be out there. Brian shrugged again, ate half the toast. He's drawing the same salary as you, he said as he chewed. Same salary as me. Yeah, because he earned it, Pookie said. Here he comes, so shut up about this, you got it? Brian crammed the rest of the toast in his mouth and nodded. John's dark purple motorcycle jacket matched his helmet. Both items looked fresh off the rack, but Pookie knew John had bought them about four years ago. John started to slide into the booth next to Brian, but Pookie stopped him. Hold on there, B&B. I think you should sit on this side with me. Brian is getting his grub on. John looked at the three empty plates of food, as well as the crumbs dangling from Brian's fuzzy beard. I guess so. Pookie slid over as his former partner slid in. John's gaze flicked to all corners of the diner, lingered over every patron in the place. Even here, even with two other cops, the guy couldn't relax. And keep your hands off the table, Pookie said. I can't hold Brian responsible if he eats them. Fuck you, said a chewing Brian. John took a deep breath and calmed himself. He closed his eyes for a moment. When he opened them, he ignored the restaurant and focused only on Brian and Pookie. I got something, he said. I looked at the Golden Gate Slasher file in the department's archives, but tons of information was missing. It's an ancient case, Pookie said. That's not surprising. But what is missing is surprising, John said. Pictures of the perp? Nope. Pictures of the crime scenes where we might see those symbols? Nope. Descriptions. Anything with detail that could tie those murders to what's going on now? All of it. Gone. Pookie felt simultaneously disappointed and excited. Disappointed because he needed that information. Excited because, just like the missing symbols in the database, this was more evidence of a strategic cover-up. Brian started to talk, but the words caught in his throat along with his last piece of toast. He gulped coffee, then continued. Why don't you just take parts? Why not just chuck the whole case file and be done with it? John's eyes narrowed, and a smile tilted up the left corner of his mouth. For a moment, Pookie saw a flash of the whip-smart inspector that Black Mr. Burns used to be. Because if the whole file was gone, someone might notice, John said. Remove the entire file for one of the biggest cases ever? Once someone realizes it's gone, questions get asked. 
Pookie reached over to the sugar bin. He started piling packets, balancing the little rectangles of stuffed white paper. What about cause of death? That article Mr. Biznash showed us said witnesses saw the slasher was killed with an arrow. But in the same article, Francis Parkmeyer claimed it was suicide. John nodded. The autopsy report also said suicide. Signed by the Silver Eagle himself, although I'm guessing he wasn't silver 30 years ago. Pookie thought back to Baldwin Metz making a rare appearance in the field to process the body of Father Paul Maloney. It gets better, John said. Guess who else was on the slasher task force with Parkmeyer? Polyester Rich Verdi and Amy Zhao. Pookie looked at Brian, who nodded knowingly. Connections were coming together. Zhao, Verdi, Metz, all connected to a case involving the symbols some thirty years ago. Zhao and Verdi, Pookie said. Were they inspectors at the time? Both were just newbies, John said. From what I could gather, Zhao was basically a glorified gopher on the case. But get a load of this. Six months after they find the slasher's body, she gets promoted to inspector. She was the youngest person ever to be promoted to that rank, a record that she still holds. Brian shook his head. Wait a minute. You're saying you think she did something during the slasher case that got her the promotion? Maybe, John said. Hard to tell with all the information that's missing, but the timing fits. Now here's the really messed up part. You also asked me to look into the Chronicle's archives on the case. I did, and I didn't find anything. Wow, Brian said. You really knocked that one out of the park, John. Pookie glared at Brian, but John didn't seem to catch the sarcasm. It's not that I didn't find anything. There was nothing to find, John said. There should have been all kinds of stuff. All the back issues that covered the slasher turning up dead, they're gone. Hard copy, microfiche, scans, electronic copies of the stories. Anything to do with that case is nowhere to be found. And before you ask if the Cron archive is missing a lot from that time period, it isn't. Just like with the slasher case files, the removal is targeted and specific. I also checked the library's archive and found exactly the same thing. On top of that, I tried to find info on that gangster killing the fortune teller showed you. That's missing as well, from both places. Pookie leaned back. The SFPD files, the Cron archives, the library. This wasn't just keeping something quiet. It was an effort to wipe history clean of anything involving the symbols. Doesn't make sense, he said. The slasher was a serial killer. Mr. Biznass says the symbol was found with the slasher. Now it looks like we have a new serial killer that's also using the symbol. Why would anyone cover up clues that could help stop a goddamn serial killer? No one answered. Brian looked at Pookie's plate, then at Pookie, then raised his eyebrows.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Pookie slid the half-eaten plate of scrambled eggs across the table. Go crazy, Mr. Piggerson. Pookie's cell phone rang. He answered. This is Inspector Chang. Inspector Chang, Kyle Solar. Well, hello, Principal Solar, Pookie said. Brian stopped chewing. He waved his hand inward. Let me hear. Pookie thumbed up the volume and held out the phone. Brian and Black Mr. Burns leaned in. Mr. Solar, Pookie said, hopefully you're not calling to give me detention. Unless, of course, I'm detained in a room with a naughty schoolgirl. Inspector, that might not be the best joke to use on a man who's responsible for the safety of actual schoolgirls. Good point, Pookie said. The jury is instructed to disregard that remark. How can I help you, sir? I asked around, as you requested, Solar said. I got something from Cheryl Evans, our art teacher. Do tell. She said she's seen drawings by a student named Rex Deprovdichuk. The drawings show Rex chopping up Alex Panos. Son of a bitch. A new lead. The same Alex Panos that is in Boyko with the former Oscar Woody and the former Jay Pilar? That's the one. This Rex Deprov... What was that last name again? Deprovdachuk. Right. You big kid? Hell no. Solar said. Tiny. Couldn't weigh more than 80 pounds tops. Is he rich? Maybe Rex had hired someone to take out Oscar. Strike two, Solar said. Single mom. I don't know if she works. His teacher said Rex wears secondhand clothes, sometimes has body odor the other kids complain about. I doubt he has two nickels to rub together. I've had him in the office a few times. I know he's had run-ins with Boyko, but he refused to name them. Pookie started to ask for Rex's address, but stopped himself. Mr. Solar, I told you I'm no longer on the case. Have you contacted Inspector Verdi by chance? I did, Solar said. Pookie gave the table a little bang with his fist. If Verdi knew about Rex, Pookie and Brian didn't dare talk to the kid. I called you anyway, Solar said. In the education business, we have a technical term for people like Verdi. Which is? Fucking douchebag, Solar said. I was hoping you were still on the case along with him. He rubbed me the wrong way. Pookie laughed. Polyester Rich couldn't rub the right way if there was a neon arrow flashing the proper direction. 
Inspector Verdi might be a little brash, but he's very good at his job. Thank you for letting me know, though. You're welcome, Solar said. I can tell that you actually care, Inspector Chang. I think that's pretty uncommon. I hope you get put back on this case. Thanks for calling, Pookie said, then hung up. Brian's eyes narrowed in annoyance. Pooks, you didn't get the kid's address. Because Verdi already has it, and he already tattled on us once to Zhao, remember? And you heard Solar? Rex is small and poor. He couldn't have done the killings and couldn't have hired someone to do them. Is he a valid lead? Yeah, but Verdi already knows about him. It's Verdi's case, Bri Bri. There's only so much we can do. Brian leaned back and glared. He wasn't happy. Pookie couldn't blame him for that. How about this? Pookie said. We give Verdi a day or two to talk to Rex. Then after Verdi moves on, you and I find a way to accidentally run into the kid. Brian looked out the window. I'd rather get on it now. And I'd rather collect a paycheck, Pookie said. The chief of police told us to stay clear, Terminator. Unless you want to end up out of a job, we need to play the hand we've been dealt. Brian paused, then nodded. Pookie tried to relax. The better Brian felt, the more stubborn he would become. Pretty soon, Pookie wouldn't be able to talk him out of following his instincts. Terminator wasn't the only one feeling frustrated. The cover-up involved murderers. At least two kids were already dead. If Zhao hadn't been playing these games, would those kids be alive? And whatever was going on, Verdi was neck deep in it. Verdi, who knew about the case's only remaining lead? Pookie started making a new stack of sugar packets. All he could do now was wait. Wait and hope that Rich Verdi wasn't covering up for a psycho. Chapter 57 Verdi and the Birdman Rich Verdi got out of the car, then brushed some lint off the sleeve of his blue suit. He shut the door and waited for Birdman to get out. He was always waiting for Birdman. The kid moved in slow motion. This was what the force was coming to. Kid had hair like a dirty mop. He wore sloppy clothes. He had a goddamned gold tooth for the love of Christ. Bobby Pigeon looked like a pimp on a four-day bender. Birdman, come on, move it! Bobby nodded. Even his nod was slow. I'm coming, boss. They started up Pacific toward the Depravdachuk's house. Verdi had parked a block away, at the corner of Wayne Place. Sometimes walking up to a perp's place gave you more options, was less conspicuous. Subtlety, calmness, keeping things as quiet as possible. That was how the job got done. Solar's call had come out of the blue. Pookie had developed that source. Rich would have done the same thing, of course, but it still chapped his ass that Pookie's work had produced a lead. Not that the lead mattered. This was nothing more than a coincidence. The Boyko kids were assholes, beating up on anyone they could. Rex Depravdachuk got his ass kicked a few times, so what? Nowadays, everyone wanted to raise kids in a goddamn airlock, protected from anything and everything. Everyone gets a goddamn trophy. When Rich had been a kid, you either learned to fight back or you ate the shit sandwich you were served. So the kid had drawn mean pictures about Boyko members, so what? It had nothing to do with the killings. He knew it, Zhao knew it, but Zhao still wanted to dot the I's and cross the T's. Whatever Amy Zhao wanted, 
if it was in Rich's power to give, Amy Zhao got. Richo, Birdman said. Riddle me something, brother. Seems to me we're kind of half-assed in this case. Why'd we get it anyway? Terminator and Pookzilla are grade-A prime, eh? We're not. Birdman shrugged. I'm game, dog. Don't get me wrong, but this is some high-profile shiz. I'm kind of new for that, you know? You're fine. I'll carry you. Just watch and learn, son. You didn't answer the question, Birdman said. Why us? And I know I'm just tagging along, so more accurately, why you? Rich wasn't going to share that answer. Zhao could when the time was right. Verdi hoped Birdman would work out, because they needed some new blood. That was why Zhao had partnered them up. Bobby was a good cop, but he clearly didn't believe in strict interpretations of the letter of the law. When it came to Marie's children, to the symbols, what mattered was how a cop would interpret the gray areas. Klauser and Chang were too goddamn goody-goody to play ball, but hopefully Bobby could be more realistic about how the world truly worked. Rich focused on the task at hand. It was the little things that got a cop killed, like routine traffic stops, or just talking to the wrong person at the wrong time. In this line of work, survival meant assuming that everyone who saw you wanted you dead. He approached the Dubrovdichuk place. A few people, mostly Chinese, mostly old, moved along the sidewalks. Verdi angled around an old lady that had to be ninety. Her steps were so tiny she looked like a bobble-headed stop-action character. This was the Chinatown for the locals, not the Chinatown for the tourists. Many windows were open, filled with shirts and pants drying on hangers or dangling from improvised clotheslines. Some store signs were mostly in Mandarin, with a little bit of English beneath, while others had no English at all. Massage parlors, beauty shops, art galleries that never seemed to be open, all in storefronts squashed down by the three- and four-story apartment buildings above them. He'd made calls to some of those apartments. The Chinese could pack ten, eleven, even fifteen people into a standard one-bedroom. Rich stopped when he saw 929 Pacific. This is it, he said. Huh, Birdman said. I bet they're the only round eyes in this building, if not in the whole neighborhood. The Dubrovdichucks lived in a tenancy in common, or TIC. The three-story house had two parallel columns of typical bay windows. Automobile suits smeared and darkened once white walls. Seven concrete steps led to three side-by-side wooden doors. One door would lead up to the third floor, one to the second, and the last entered into the Dubrovdichuk's ground-floor flat. Let me do the talking, Rich said as he pressed the door buzzer. Don't I always? Ferdy heard footsteps coming from inside the house. Little footsteps. The door opened a couple of inches before a snapping chain lock stopped it. Halfway down, a tiny face looked out. Verdi's nose caught a faint, ripe smell, just a trace of it. He knew that smell. The boy's face wrinkled with distrust. Who are you? Inspector Verdi, San Francisco Police, Rich said. Are you Rex? The boy's jaw dropped. His eyes widened. He slammed the door shut so hard the wood rattled and the glass cracked. The slam made the air swirl and another whiff of that odor tickled Rich's nose. He recognized it, unforgettable, unmistakable. 
the smell of a corpse. Rich drew his Sig Sauer. Before he could say anything, Bobby drew his own. At least the kid was fast when it mattered. Rich slid to the right side of the door, shoulder on the frame, gun in both hands and pointed up. Do it! Bobby lifted a big Doc Martin and push-kicked. The door slammed open, ripping the metal chain free and sending it spinning down the hallway's hardwood floor. Bobby went in first. Rich followed, saw Rex sprinting down the long hall. The boy ran through the last door on the left and slammed it shut behind him. Bobby ran after him. Just inside the front door, Rich glanced into the living room on his left. A woman's body, face up on the floor, a belt wrapped around her neck. Eyes open and staring. Splotchy facial bruising. Purple discoloration around the skin just above and below the belt. A gray pallor covered the corpse's other exposed areas. Rich saw all this in a half-second glance. He looked back down the hall, saw Birdman kick through the bedroom door and point his gun inside. Lie down on the floor! Bobby screamed into the room. That's when Rich felt the footsteps behind him. He turned, but too late. Something smashed into his back, driving his head into the unforgiving wall. As he fell, he had a glimpse of a man racing past. Long black beard, white wife beater, green baseball cap. The man carried a hatchet. By the time Rich hit the floor, the bearded man had closed in on Bobby. Bobby saw the man coming and turned to fire. The hatchet slid through the air. Two shots, so close together they sounded like one. The hatchet hit Bobby on the right side of his neck and drove down into his sternum. Rich would never forget that sound, that whiff-crunch sound of the blade digging home. Rich scrambled to his knees. He raised his gun and fired, pop, pop, but the watery eyes and wobbly hands threw off his aim. The bearded man gripped Bobby's shoulders and turned fast, putting Bobby's back toward Rich. The tip of the hatchet stuck out between his partner's shoulder blades. That cut his heart in half. The man yanked the hatchet free and stepped backward into the room, grabbing Bobby's gun as he did. Rich couldn't move. He couldn't breathe. Bobby's right arm hung down low, swinging sickly from the gaping wound as if it had no bones at all. He took a single, short, staggering step. Then his legs gave out. He fell face first. Rich saw blood pour out of him, spreading across the wood floor. That cut Bobby's heart in half. You can't help him. Get out. Get out. Get back up. Rich found his feet under him, found himself backpedaling, right hand pointing his gun, left hand grabbing his radio. 1199! 1199! Officer down! Officer down at 929 Pacific! Give me some fucking help! Now! He backed out of the door and into the evening air. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth 
of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.